You're listening to a podcast from 702. Until this Sunday at Checkers and Checkers Hyper, SA's number one supermarket as voted by the star's readers. 702. Coming up at 10 past 5. The newsmaker of the day. With John Pullman. Happy Monday to you. Yeah, and happy <laughs> Monday to you too. Very celebratory start with birthdays and reflections love birthdays. on I love birthdays. Age. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I stayed out of the age discussion. I thought of calling in. <laughs> oh, really? I wonder. Now you're making us curious, John. Don't make me push you. No, I, I really enjoyed what, what people were saying, you know, but about the, the things that come with getting older and some life behind you, plenty of life ahead, you know, but, <laughs> but not as much as you would have thought in your 20s. And I thought the point you made that, you know, every birthday you have been gifted another year. And, mm. you know, I think it was really appropriate in these times we're living in because people have dealt with such physical and, and emotional uncertainty. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. So who's the big newsmaker today? So what we want to focus on, still lining up the guests, but the ANC's National Working Committee will now, uh, we're told, be talking about the uh, the step-aside issues involving Ace Makhashule and others. We hope to deal with that at 10 past 5. We are also going to pick up on something you've been talking about, Azza, this issue around canned hunting. But, you know, some of the other broad conversations and we're trying to get representatives of the hunting industry because they have their uh, their strong advocates and their defenders and they would say that you know if there's a really old animal that is going to die anyway and you can make money from trophy hunting and put that back into conversation uh, conservation there's an argument to be made so i'm i'm happy to as a, a great lover of the bush i'm happy to engage with that and, and hear what they have to say but we'll also talk to journalist don pinnock who's written some really interesting stuff about that that's coming up a little mm. bit later stuff going on in the city of Joburg, a metro bus strike and a new initiative for dealing with potholes which involves an app we're told of course there was an app before so we'll find out uh, why the new app is different to the old app but more importantly what is this meant to achieve that's coming up uh, with the mayor of the city at about 10 minutes to four Right. That's the uh, yeah, mayor of the city of Johannesburg. Wonderful. We'll be listening. That's coming up on Afternoon Drive today with Dr. John Pullman. 702. The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you? I am well. Been looking forward to our time today. It's been a while. <laughs> I missed a Monday. I'm glad you're well. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very good, thank you. But I'm, likewise, I missed you too. So welcome back. Yes, good to be back. As we open the lines now on zero one one eight eight three zero seven zero two, what questions do you have for the naked scientist? This is your segment, your opportunity to ask him any science-related question, um, your fascination, your curiosity, uh, or for him to explain a phenomena, whatever it may be. Zero one one eight eight three zero seven zero two. So, Chris, I've been looking at um, the effects of COVID nineteen on the brain. I mean, it's what over. Over a year now, scientists have had to work so hard in understanding the impact of this virus on the body. Um, but of course, there are other curious symptoms, the loss of smell, and then brain-related symptoms uh, like headaches, confusion, hallucinations, delirium um, that some infections can cause. And others have been accompanied by depression, anxiety, and sleep problems. What, if, what does it do? What does it do to the brain? Doctors have said to me, some of them that this is one of the weirdest diseases they've ever treated because there are so many unpredictable and unforeseen outcomes as well as sort of a, acute illness that's really varied in how it presents right through from 
some people having no symptoms at all half the time, which is you know an extraordinary number of people not to have any symptoms with an infection, right through to people, as we know, unfortunately dying of this thing. But it's not just the acute infection, it's the aftermath where almost like the gift that keeps on giving, this is the infection that keeps on causing repercussions. And, and this is where this whole idea of long COVID came mm. from. And we still don't really know what long COVID is, but we know it affects a significant proportion, maybe one person in 10 of the, the people who get it. And we suspect it's, it's almost certainly some kind of inflammatory or post-viral manifestation. It's certainly true that you can find cases of people who have had the acute infection and got brain problems. That may well be because the disease plays havoc with the immune system at the time and also plays havoc with the clotting system in the body. So some of the injury in people's brains have been because they've had a stroke, basically, because the clotting's gone off kilter and they've blocked up blood vessels that supply their brains. Wow. But longer term... We we know that there are a whole host of diseases which are driven by the immune system, and they include immune attack on parts of the nervous system. And it may well be that uh, if you adjust your immune response in the way that coronavirus seems to be able to do in some people in an unpredictable way, and we don't know who who's going to get what syndrome, uh, young or old, you do end up with, in some cases, immune consequences affecting the nervous system. And this includes things ranging through from depression and fatigue and anxiety disorders through to people who actually physically get much more severe consequences. So at the moment, it's, it's early days and mm. we're still gathering data. And, and the big problem here is trying to disentangle what really was coronavirus and what was going to happen anyway and what's something else. Because one has to be very cautious when you've got enormous numbers of people catching something so there's a big common factor coronavirus then it's easy to drag in with with those cases the people who were going to get whatever problem anyway and then okay. say ah this must have happened because of coronavirus okay. so proving that there's a causal link is also very important to do and that takes time and takes very careful analysis otherwise we'll end up barking up the wrong tree uh-huh. and attributing so many things to it that not that shouldn't necessarily be attributed to it um so let's hear from our listeners now on 0118830702 we've got so many of your voice notes as well on 0727021702 hello azania um i have a question for the naked scientist i'd like to know if um if thermometer is used to measure temperature why is it that 20 degrees in summer is hotter than 20 degrees in winter thank you (laughs) okay (laughs) did you catch that one chris yeah i did and i think there's a number of things to consider here aren't there you've got to take into account wind chill for a start and humidity because all of these things, when we're measuring temperature, all we're doing is measuring the average energy of molecules in the air. And so a good way of thinking about this is if I'm driving down the road and I stick my hand out of the car window, when the car's moving, the air will feel colder against my hand than when the car is stationary. But if I had a thermometer and I did that, the thermometer would not change its reading. Mm. And this is because what is happening is that as your hand, which is hotter than the surroundings, is encountering air molecules from the surroundings, your hand is giving energy to its environment. So if you change the air around your hand more frequently, you've got a stronger impetus for your hand to give more energy away more often to more cooler air molecules. So as a result, it feels colder, and that's the wind chill effect. So I suspect that some of this is going to be because of changes seasonally in in what the wind is doing, where the wind's coming from, and how humid the air is, because all of those factors affect 
how well the air around you will take energy away from your body and therefore affect the so-called wind chill of, of things without actually having to affect the temperature. There's also a very healthy helping of psychology in this. <laughs> if you go out on a, on a warm day and you think it's nice and sunny and warm and you feel warm and you're active and doing things, you're going to feel warmer because you're busier and in a, a sort of more robust sense of, sense of mind. Then if it's the middle of winter, you think, oh, I feel really cold. I'm not very with it today. And uh, the psychology makes you feel colder as well. So there's a whole raft of things that probably play into this observation. Right. Here's a question. And it says, let me just locate my, there we go. I'll find it in a moment. It's giving me a little bit of an issue. Um, it says, hi, Dr. Chris. So, uh, so much we do is instinctive driving, riding a bicycle, but still now in my 50, it, it, I'm, I'm, now I'm in my late 50s. I cannot instinctively identify my left from my right. I have to do a quick air scribble, <laughs> which confirms <laughs> my right hand. Why is this? Or should I just keep quiet? <laughs> comes from Felicity. I, I'd keep quiet. <laughs> it, it's one of those things, actually, isn't it? That, um, some of us will, when you say to someone, right, do up that screw, yes, yes, in your yes, mind's yes. eye, you know when you grab the screwdriver which way you're <laughs> going to turn it. But until you actually do it, you think, hang on, if I have to describe this to somebody, is that right or left? Or, And some people just know clockwise, anti-clockwise, right and left, no problem. Others physically have to do an action, do a manoeuvre, or look at their two hands to work out, or think of a clock, what way is the hands going on the clock, yes. to work out what is clockwise and hence right versus anti-clockwise. And it just happens that some people will find this much more intuitive than others in, in probably much the same way that some people are very good at music, some people are very good at math, some people have better memory, some people have a weaker memory. That relationship between a movement or uh, a three-dimensional rearrangement of you and the environment in relation to you, that does take quite a lot of neurological processing. And some people are really very good at doing that and some people are less good. Mm. There's some claim that for some things men are better than women at doing some of these sorts of manipulations whilst for other sorts of mental manipulations women are better than men so it probably comes down to because there is that uh, sex effect it probably comes down to the fact that that there are different bits of the brain that are contributing to this and depending on how well those different bits of the brain are connected to other bits of the brain that you need in order to make those sorts of mental ch rotations and mental plans it probably plays out with how well you are at judging those sorts of things or remembering them or doing them instinctively. Mm, all right. Uh, and here's another voice note. Hi, Azania and Dr. Chris. If a donkey and a horse mm -hmm. can mate and create a mule, and a tiger and a lion can mate and create a liger, is there an animal that can come together with a human being and create a another species my eyes are I'm popped not, wide open I'm, <laughs> yes, Chris. I'm not aware of that being the case because it's actually a bit of a nature's accident that some species can do this and oh. it's because they are so closely related that their configuration of chromosomes is sufficiently close that they do produce viable offspring but if you think about the fact that in a human where there's 23 pairs of chromosomes, if anything goes adrift genetically, mm. there are enormous repercussions. And you just have to look at people who have those problems to realize that, that uh, they have an issue. Mm. And when you therefore take another species entirely, 
and mix the chromosomes up with a human, because there's such a big genetic gap between us and those other species, there would be an, in, an, an incompatible with life configuration of genetic material and it just wouldn't work. But that wasn't always the case. And if we go back in the evolutionary history, remember that there were multiple types of, of human on Earth all coexisting at the, roughly the same time. And the best example and the best documented example is Neanderthals, which were one kind of human, and anatomically modern Homo sapiens. And we know for a fact, because we have now got the complete genome of Neanderthals, that there must have been an interbreeding between anatomically modern humans and Neanderthals up until the point at which Neanderthals went extinct, which happened sometime between 20 and 40,000 years ago. Because we can detect the genetic legacy of those Neanderthals in anatomically modern humans today. So there's a really good example of how, although what I've said that there isn't an example, as far as we know now on Earth, of a species sufficiently close to humans to interbreed with us and produce a kind of hybrid, back in history when there were close analogues of, of, uh, of our species coexisting on Earth, that did happen mm -hmm. and we've got the genetic evidence that it did. Hmm. Tabo has given us a call from Pretoria. Hello, Tabo. Hi, Azza. How are you? Good. How are you? Fine, fine, thanks. I just quickly, hi, Dr. Chris, I just quickly want to find out uh, why is it when I'm pressed during summer? I can't hold it, you know, but even now as I'm speaking to you, it's about winter time and I'm pressed, but I don't feel that agency of going to <laughs> What's the relationship between two this? Uh, between these two seasons, mm -hmm. is there anything to eat scientifically? Okay. Mm. So I, I guess can I can I say uh, have I correctly sort of summarised the question? If I say why is it that sometimes when you're going without food you feel very very hungry, whereas at other times you will go without food for the same period of time and you don't feel as hungry, you don't seem to notice as much. Is that a reasonable summary of that question? He's talking about being pressed and needing the loo. Uh, I'm, I'm, I couldn't hear the question, sorry, sorry. No, it's fine, Chris. I just also want a clar uh, clarity from Tabo. Tabo, you're saying in summer it's hard to hold a full bladder. It's, it's extremely hard. To hold a full bladder, but then in winter... I don't know. Yeah. If it's warming me up and so I don't feel the need for what? <laughs> well, actually, you're bucking the trend because, in fact, most people will say that they go to the wee more in winter than in summer. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one is in summer, when it's hotter, you're more likely to sweat. And sweating, you can sweat up to five litres an hour if you're a trained athlete wow. or in very, very humid conditions where the amount of... of heat loss conferred by sweating is reduced and so you sweat even more to compensate. I mean you can dehydrate to death through sweating very quickly. If you are losing a lot of water through sweating then you are able to lose less water through urination so you will wee less because you can't afford to lose as much water that way and in winter on the other hand you're not sweating so much um, so you'd, you'd therefore be able to, to produce more urine. The other, question, the other consideration in winter is there is a phenomenon called cold diuresis. When the weather's cold, what tends to happen is that you clamp the blood vessels down in your peripheries a bit, so you send less blood to your fingers, toes, your skin, and as a result of that, you move more of your blood circulation centrally, and this is to conserve heat. But that means that your kidneys see a higher average arterial pressure centrally because there's more blood flowing around your core organs mm -hmm. and because of that the kidney says aha I must have too much blood on board 
So it triggers the release of extra volume fluid as urine. And this is why uh, people tend to wee more in, in cold w- weather. Mm. So you're, you're um, perhaps bucking the trend unless in the hot, in the hot weather, you are drinking heaps more to compensate. And so your body's still got plenty of spare fluid. So it's turning the excess into urine, which is what your kidneys do. So maybe that's the reason. <laughs> and um, you don't need to go. You need to go more because you're drinking more and the rate of urine production is higher. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Tabo. <laughs> we did say your curiosities and there we got a typical one. Dingani, it seems like you have a follow-up question to that. Hi, Dingani. Water and anatomy again. If I run fast, if I run water, right, I, I have an, an urge to go. If I water the garden, I will have an, an urge to go. My son, I've, I've done the same thing. And whenever it drizzles and I hear the rain, the sound of water, I have to go. I've done this not only with myself, but with my son and some friends. I think something to do with men and how we respond to the sound of water. <laughs> oh, there's a gender thing there too. Okay. Uh, that didn't it's see a that, sort that, of brain that... over bladder thing, this, uh-huh. isn't it? In the sense that when you know that there is no way of getting near a toilet, mm-hmm. you find it much easier to hang on than when you are within that last five oh, yards of getting oh, to the loo. Do you oh, know what I'm talking about? Yes. You've been on a long car journey or in a traffic jam or stuck in a queue somewhere and you think, I really need the wee, but I, I can cope. It's okay. Mm. And then as you get right to the toilet, it's almost like, if I don't go right now, there's going to be Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> the finish line. <laughs> and when think, the finish line now is I was sight. okay, but now I'm not. Why is this? Why the sudden change? And so there's an enormous amount of psychology in this. The brain and particularly the autonomic nervous system that controls the... It's an unconscious system that controls all the body's functions without you having to physically think about it. That has an enormous role in preparing for when we go to the loo and when we're going to relax our bladder, when we're going to contract our bladder to expel urine, when we need to hang on, when we don't need to hang on. Superimposed on that is the psychology of the environment you're in. Mm -hmm. Just been talking about knowing you're near the loo. Well, also knowing you're near water and hearing water also will summon up from the kind of primitive parts of the brain those memories of tinkling noises and water running which remind you of going to the wee and it then puts in train that whole kind of mental program of i'm I'm going to the wee now and as a result it erodes your resolve to hang on and you have to go to the wee (laughs) erodes that resolve let's go to karabo karabo good afternoon hi afternoon um my question i'd like to know the pilots of helicopters, even every time you hear that there was a crash, yeah. I always ask myself that I, are they not allowed to jump out of the helicopter when they can see it crashing? This morning, mm. for heaven's sake, it crashed next to a river, and I'm asking myself, why couldn't they jump into the river and affect the death? Is it, is it uh, maybe the, uh, the, the law that prevents them to abandon the helicopter, or maybe it's the science to it? Mm, yeah, I think we've seen that moment in the in the movies and you think, you're so close to the ground, just jump to safety. Don't go up and smoke in a helicopter as it crashes. Is, what is the science? Is is it a practical, uh, would it be practical at all? It depends um, how high you're jumping from because once you go over a certain height, then you will, because you're falling under the influence of gravity and it takes time to accelerate you, once you get beyond a certain height, you will get to a certain velocity or speed with which you are falling that will do very serious damage to your body. Mm. Then you've got to take into account what you're landing on because it's tempting to think, well, if the plane was going to crash, I'd just jump out into the sea or something and then swim. But actually, 
the speed you would reach without a parachute to retard your fall would mean that when you hit water, which at the speed you would be hitting it would be more like running into the ground almost, Ooh. because water is, n is not like air, and you, you would come to a very abrupt stop, and it's the deceleration that does the injury. Y you would get quite seriously injured if you just fell into the water from a considerable height, doing very, very significant speeds. So up to a point... You can survive doing this. You okay. can also use various maneuvers to slow yourself down. You'll see people who uh, are, are very experienced skydivers do things like put their arms and legs out wide to catch as much air and use and produce as much air resistance as they can to slow themselves down. But people who are chaotically falling out of a, an object or, or jumping off a, an aircraft or something, very often they'll just tumble and fall and, and they won't be able to have the time to organize themselves in that way or the resolve to do that. Mm -hmm. So as a result, they often just go splat into the ground, going very fast, and then they do all kinds of injuries to themselves. And, and as I say, hitting water at those sorts of speeds at funny angles will also do enormous damage. So yes, if you were between a rock and a hard place, you might still want to try that because you've got nothing to lose, but yeah. it's not as easy as you might think. Yes, and that, of course, is on the back of today's news, the SA Civil Aviation Authority has started investigations into what caused the crash that happened in the, in, in Durban today, uh, by the Umgeni River. It's suggested that it was a bird strike that caused this particular helicopter to crash and two people have lost their lives. But Chris, that's all we have time for for today. It was lovely to have the session. We'll be back on Monday for sure. God willing, inshallah. But thank you. Thank you and see you next week. Absolutely. That's our segment with the Naked Scientist.